to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with all of you now. Team Buck, welcome. Welcome into the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. Uh, a, a lot of National security in the news, in the headlines today. We will certainly talk about uh, what's going on with North Korea and Afghanistan, although we'll do probably a deeper a deeper dive into Afghanistan tomorrow, uh, plus the latest in politics with this White House, the infighting, allegations of surveillance. Might talk a bit about uh, Pruitt and the uh, EPA that he's dealing with. Microaggressions probably make their way into the show later on as well. We'll, we'll get into a, a scientific discussion of microaggressions. Oh, gosh, microaggressions. And all the rest of whatever we decide to uh, hit on here. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK on the phone lines. North Korea. Um, the situation on the Korean Peninsula right now is bad, uh, and it is only likely to get worse. Now, we are, of course, hearing a lot about the messaging that the Trump administration uh, has shown in the last uh, week or so with the airstrikes on, uh, I keep saying airstrikes, missile strikes, pardon me, the missile strikes on the Syrian air base in response to the chemical weapons usage. We've talked about that in detail here on the show. And then there was the carrier group sent into the vicinity of the Korean Peninsula, which in and of itself is not particularly unusual, though it does send something of a message. And today you had in uh, Nangahar province in eastern Afghanistan a Moab dropped a mother of all bombs um, and it's one of these instances uh, where everyone's talking about how there's a lot of messaging in at play here now so the massive ordnance air blast bomb the gbu 43 dropped on a network of tunnels in eastern afghanistan right near the afpac border uh, yes, it may have been very useful for collapsing tunnels and destroying uh, the infrastructure that they're trying to protect for the Islamics, that the Islamic State's trying to protect with those tunnels, as well as, I'm sure, taking out a, a number of ISIS, Afghanistan ISIS fighters. But people say this also is a signal, a signal to dictators around the world that there is no tool that the United States government with Donald Trump as commander-in-chief is, when the circumstances call for it, there is no tool the government is unwilling to use. Now, this is the reinstating of all options are on the table, but we mean it. 
That's the difference, you see, between this administration and the previous one. Uh, President Obama knew that there were certain foreign policy norms that he would have to uphold. Otherwise, he would lose credibility with uh, enough of the center of this country politically that there would be problems for his administration. Uh, So there were policies that were in place, or at least spoken of, uh, like all options are on the table when it comes to Iran. Perfect example. They weren't. There was the Obama administration wasn't going to do anything about Iran other than deal with them and give them a lot in a deal they wouldn't have gotten from a savvier and uh, stronger foreign policy administration. Uh, but they had to say it. Right, all options are on the table. And with the Bin Laden raid giving the administration a lot of polit- I mean, we always forget this. I, I see this all the time when people discuss it. The Bin Laden raid gave the Obama administration. Uh, a, a lot of much-needed foreign policy and national security credibility and political capital here at home that it would not have otherwise had, uh, despite the fact that, as we know, that there was a lot of waiting and dithering on that as well uh, on the executive side in terms of how long before they decided to launch that raid. But the Obama administration did it, and they certainly took their fair share of victory laps forward. In fact, President Obama, when he first came out and announced it, it, it it almost seemed like he was right there with the seals. I mean, it was President Obama's moment of national security uh, glory, at least in the eyes of Democrats. So um, the administration now, if you want to talk about messages, the Trump administration is trying to remind the rest of the world, especially our our enemies and our allies. Right. Every strong action we take is a reminder to our allies that they are standing on the side of the greatest military power in the world. We're not just the wealthiest country in the world, uh, and we're not just the defender and upholder of Western civilization and of the freedoms and liberties and norms that comes with all of that. We also have the most uh, kick-butt military in the history of the, well, the history of the planet. You could say the history of the universe, because we're the only life forms that we have yet found in the universe, so... Yeah, we do have the best military in the history of the universe. There you go. Uh, But with North Korea, it's important to understand the full scope of what we're dealing with. Messaging, when we're talking about the Assad regime, even perhaps the mullahs in Tehran, we can get a sense of how it will be received. But with North Korea, you have a country that is so bizarre And so outside of what we would expect to exist in the 21st century anywhere, that it can be hard to anticipate the way that our actions would be received there. In fact, I don't think anybody can really do it um, because this is a a true totalitarianism uh, across the board. And there's one individual, uh, Kim Jong-un, who makes the decisions. There's one individual at the very top who gets to decide what the future of that country will be. I'm sure there are some trusted generals, but even the trusted generals know that their lifespan is quite uncertain, depending on the whims of this little uh, this little tyrant, Kim Jong Un, who's a few years younger than me. Astonishing that this guy runs a country, although he's he's really running as. It was notably called by Christopher Hitchens a concentration camp above ground and a mass grave below it. Uh, North Korea, despite all of the 
moves that we have made in recent weeks with the Trump administration showing that it's willing to take action, whether you agree with the specific actions or not, at least you can say that um, Trump enforced a red line. He enforced it for Obama in Syria on Obama's behalf, you could say. But he will take action. But North Korea is a problem that is likely, as I said, to get worse. Of the uh, nine nuclear states that exist uh, on on Earth right now, North Korea is uh, the most belligerent and the one that I'd have to say is the most likely in the future to do something that we would we would consider rash and uh dare I say, insane, but from their perspective, from their worldview, from the the hermit kingdom's eye view of things, um, they may view this as necessary for their survival. They might lash out in a way that we would think of as unpredictable. Um, But we have to stop thinking that this is a problem that will go away on its own. In fact, what we've seen after eight years of the Obama administration doing very little on North Korea, is that it will only get worse. Um, And what we've seen in Syria, for example, the only way you could point to Syria and say things have gotten better is to say that that conflict has, at some level, started to burn itself out. With already a half a million dead, uh, it's slowing down, but that may just be because most of the major carnage has already occurred. Most of the major cities have been destroyed. Uh, in harder in in part or in whole so this is what we see with north korea but in a different way things just getting worse Uh, we want the north koreans to give up nuclear weapons and we want them to give it we want them to stop this because the concern as we've discussed before on this show is that at some point in the future this country run by a little 30 something year old uh, pudgy tyrant is going to be able to put a nuclear weapon on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile, which means that it would then be able to hit this country, as well as many of our allies. And beyond that, it would be able to engage in nuclear blackmail. Because we have something worth protecting here. The North Korean regime really does not. um, And who knows how they will act in response Uh, to any further calls for them to give up nukes once they actually have the ability to hit us here. So uh, nukes are also central to North Korea's identity uh, as a state. Um, Nukes are the apex of military force. And since the entire Kim dynasty uh, is really just resting atop an enormous mountain of cold, brutal, relentless force is not going to give up nuclear weapons um, under the uh, certainly not under the current trajectories of what we see happening in that country. Our, our policy for the last 20 or so years has been of, well, it's really containment and and just hope for the best. Uh, the sanctions regimes that we ha- we've had in place, can be stronger. I'll talk to you a bit more about that this hour. They haven't been that good. Uh, we we have there are people that are expert in sanctions that would even say that what we've done against Iran and maybe even in some ways Russia has been more targeted and more sensible as a means of trying to change policy. 
but the policy objective with it com- when it comes to North Korea has been containment. And if we look at that as also containing the proliferation of weapons, we have been, if not a total failure, we have failed in large part. North Korea is a major weapons proliferator. In fact, you've seen weapon shipments from North Korea uh, that have been caught on their way to various terrorist groups around the world. Because the North Koreans will sell guns and grenade launchers and whatever to anybody. They don't care. Uh, They are in a constant struggle to try to find uh, foreign currency uh, for their to prop up their own economy. As you know, they are cut off largely from the global economy, although not entirely, and that's a major part of what we need to do if we're going to try and change their behavior. China accounts for 90% of North Korea's economic activity. So we'll get into the, as well, this hour, um, the role that China plays in all this. Uh, but their, the day of reckoning... Uh, when the North Koreans will have a nuclear-tipped ICBM, that day is getting closer, and then it will be a threat to the U.S. homeland. It's already an existential threat with with conventional and and chemical munitions to South Korea and to some of our other uh, Asian allies. Uh, This is a problem that the Trump administration inherits, in a sense, from an Obama administration that did very little, just was willing to let this continue to fester. And time is not on our side here because with each passing year, North Korea gets closer to this goal of nukes atop an intercontinental ballistic missile. And at that point, the whole game starts to change for us. Um, This is a country in which you can be executed for possessing a Bible. This is a country where you could be executed for any number of offenses that in a normal, rational country, in a normal world, would, would never be considered an offense of any kind. You know, school children on their, way to, on their way to school have to carry around with them little, little photos of the dear leader, and they go into school, and the dear leader's on the wall, and it is like 1984 made real. Um, it's the truest totalitarian society uh, that exists today, and you could argue in many ways it's the most thorough totalitarianism that has ever existed in that it is decades now of worship of a dynasty. And, all right, I'm going off on North Korea here, and we're, we're running low on, on time for this segment. So... If you got thoughts on North Korea, missile strikes, dropping Moabs in Afghanistan, all of the above, do call in 844-900-2825. I've been de- describing the problem. I want to talk more about what Trump is doing to confront it now, what this administration is doing, and then we'll get into uh, possible solutions. We'll move on from North Korea to Afghanistan and then politics and microaggressions. Oh, my very busy show, my friends. We'll be right back. I don't know if this sends a message. Uh, it doesn't make any difference if it does or not. North Korea is a problem. The problem will be taken care of. I will say this. I think uh, China has uh, really been working very hard. Uh, I have really gotten to like and respect, as you know, President Xi. He's a very special man. So we'll see how it goes. I think he's going to try very hard. China is critical here. Uh, Trump is right. N- notice how, by the way, over the last week or so, We've seen 
the foreign policy establishment begin to embrace Donald Trump's actions? Sure, his rhetoric may be off sometimes. They don't like the specifics of how he talks about different issues. But Trump is taking the actions that the foreign policy elites, um, and when I mean that, I don't, I, I don't mean that as a pejorative so much as I mean those who work in foreign policy um, and have longstanding expertise, that if the closest thing to a consensus is what he's been doing recently. Sitting down with China, speaking about North Korea, uh, striking at Assad as a means of at least creating the creating the possibility of different actions from the Assyrian government when it comes to how they treat their civilians and what they're going to be willing to do in that war zone. So, and, and then the dropping of the Moab on eastern uh, in eastern Afghanistan against the Islamic State. Uh, you know, this is we, we have them for this purpose. There were it was out in a rural area. They dropped this massive twenty thousand plus pound bomb. It works, as I understand it, in a fashion similar to the original concept of a of a daisy cutter bomb, which has been around for a long time. Uh, and Trump is doing things that I think the foreign policy establishment is saying, okay, well, this is it's different from Obama, but that's a good thing because Obama allowed problems to fester and get worse. Obama decided that, and I'm not making this up, on North Korea, the policy was, quote, strategic patience. So with the previous administration, we had in Libya, quote, leading from behind as the description of what they were trying to accomplish. And then in in North Korea, so we had leading from behind in Libya, and then in North Korea, it was, quote, strategic patience. Well, when you have an enemy which we do in Kim Jong-un and his top military uh, advisors, his generals, uh, when you have somebody who has absolutely no moral compass whatsoever, is willing to allow for the starvation of his, in fact, to bring about the starvation, to create the starvation of his own people, and to use that, I should note, as a tool to get more international aid, right? He forces starvation on his people and then... The North Korean government turns around and says, well, we need more stuff so we can feed our people. It's a country that holds its own population hostage and sends them to uh, work camps where they die and people starve. It's a, a continuous day in and day out atrocity. And it has the DMZ, of course, which is a strange way to describe it because it is a highly militarized zone. It is not a demilitarized zone. It's the most militarized zone really on the planet. And they have artillery pointing at Seoul. We know they have uh, a nuclear weapons program. We know they have been pursuing other um, means of trying to use those nukes, ICBMs and uh, they will sell their technology to rogue regimes all over the world. We've got to do something about this. This is the, the clock is not on our side. We can't take a knee here. And the Obama administration, because there were other things they had to push, other concerns, right? They're trying to get amnesty through. And then, of course, defending Obamacare and climate change. Oh, the big Paris climate change agreement. Uh, while all that's happening, North Korea just gets closer and closer to being able to destroy a U.S. city. That's what we're really talking about here. So enlisting China on our side to help us here as much as possible is a critical step. We'll talk about that and 
what it would look like going forward. More coming up. The issues are global and so interlocked that to consider the problems of one sector oblivious to those of another is but to court disaster for the whole. While Asia is commonly referred to as the gateway to Europe, it is no less true that Europe is the gateway to Asia and the broad influence of the one cannot fail to have its impact upon the other. There are those who claim our strength is inadequate to protect on both fronts, that we cannot divide our effort. I can think of no greater expression of defeatism. That was General Douglas MacArthur in his farewell address to Congress, which was given on the 19th of April next week, uh, many years ago, back in 1951. Uh, MacArthur was relieved of his command, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, in part or, well, because of his desire to engage the Chinese uh, militarily after they had crossed the Yalu River as part of operations over the course of the Korean War. What we see today with North Korea is, yes, a a continuation of that conflict. In fact, the conflict has never really technically ended. Um, There's not a a formal uh, peace treaty in place. Uh, So we have this divided Korean peninsula still. And by the way, MacArthur was speaking about the global menace of communism at the time. Interesting side note, uh, North Korea's ideology, depending on who you talk to about it, there's some dispute about this because, of course, it's an incredibly closed society. There are visitors, as you know, Dennis Rodman famously went there a few years ago. Uh, there are Westerners who go, and, and you can report from there, but it's all with minders in place. It's all uh, staged for you, and there are extreme limitations on what journalists can do while they are there, and you don't want to run afoul of the authorities because they don't care about freedom or freedom of the press or upsetting uh, countries by locking up foreign nationals for long periods of time. Uh, But there is a book that is not talked about much now in the context of North Korea, but it might be worth uh, revisiting. It's by Brian Reynolds Myers. It was written back in 2010 called The Cleanest Race, How North Koreans See Themselves and Why It Matters. The argument of the book is that North Korea is really first and foremost founded on a form of ultra-nationalism, xenophobia, and uh, racial hierarchy that is similar to what was the case in Imperial Japan. Uh, A historical note that I've always thought got far too little attention from people, especially uh, those who spend time reading about the Second World War or watching the seemingly endless series of uh, very engrossing documentaries, uh, military history series on the Second World War, was that the racism and the evils perpetrated in the name of racism by the imperial Japanese against other uh, Asian races and countries was uh, appalling on a scale that is hard to, it's hard to stomach, it's hard to fathom and, and really read about, think about. Uh, and the, the argument made in this book is that North Korea is similarly based on 
uh, racial superiority, i.e. North Koreans are the, the greatest, noblest race in the world, um, that South Koreans are are essentially fake, they're not as authentic as North Koreans are, and that the rest of the world needs to bow down before North Korea. And of course, I don't have to tell you that it is also Stalinist in its military pretensions and uh, military outlook. Uh, we see North Korea's nuclear weapons as a problem to be dealt with. The Kim regime, because uh, it really is a it's a one it's a one man show in the sense that he makes all the decisions as his father, uh, Kim Jong Il, and his father before him, Kim Il Sung. Uh, they also ruled in that way. And what we're two days away from the Day of the Sun, I think, which is Kim Il Sung's birthday, as it is celebrated in. Yeah, it's the 15th, right? Um, I, I can't hear you, but the, the sign language you're giving me right now is not... Uh, I'm, uh, one day from his birthday. 105th birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's his birthday. Yeah, I mean, what what the actual birthday is is not as relevant to me as the day, because that might be a day that we see a major, a major test. Um, so... This is the reality of the regime uh, we are facing. They do not want to give up nukes because they also can look around the world, as anyone could, and say that regimes that give up nukes that are on the outs with the rest of the international community, they don't tend to last very long. Regimes with nukes last a long time. Even in a, in a very different context, uh, you look at what happened with Ukraine and the agreement that the U.S. was a part of, the U.S., the United Kingdom, and, yes, Russia, that if Ukraine gave up the nukes that it inherited after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, that we would protect it. Well, that didn't last. That didn't really last very long, did it? So nukes are, and this is what the the Iranian regime too realizes this, which is why the notion that they're going to give up their nuclear program because of Obama's deal with them is is just is preposterous. But it's something that the previous administration and many Democrats who paid lip service to it uh, they. They are clinging to this fiction, but okay. So North Korea is not just extreme militarism and absolutist totalitarianism, but it is also racism, and perhaps in a central a way that is central to the ideology of the regime, it is racist and seeks to exterminate those who are less than. Uh, and the nukes that it has are not a problem. It's not just a bargaining chip from the North Korean perspective. But it is the great equalizer in the end with South Korea and with all of North Korea's enemies. So once they get their nukes to a place where they are um, competent enough in their deployment to use them as a first strike weapon, say, against the South Koreans, well, then they can deal with that whole South Korea problem in their eyes uh, pretty quickly. So this is terrifying stuff. I mean, we, we are facing a regime that with whom the possibility of nuclear war is not imminent, but it is very real down the line. And all of the indicators that we have right now are that the policies that we've been trying so far won't work. Okay, what will work? Now, I've been telling you how scary this is, how bad this is, and, and that's real. Uh, but what can we do about it other than just messaging, which is an important first step? And everything Trump is doing right now, it should be noted to me, uh, in my in my view, is, is an important first step, right? The, the strike in Syria. That alone is not a whole lot. It's the beginning of a longer uh, shift in policy that could be useful, could be beneficial to, uh, well, certainly to Syrian people that we don't want to see harmed with chemical weapons or otherwise, and, and also in terms of the policy of ending civil war there. But 
what the dropping of a Moab in eastern Afghanistan. I know everyone's saying, oh, look at the symbolism of this. Okay. Well, we've dropped a lot of bombs in Afghanistan for a very long time. This just happens to be the biggest one. So, yes, it gets media coverage. People will talk about it, and there'll be a lot of diagrams. There'll probably even be a vox explainer of, you know, what is the, what is the Moab? And, like, look at how big the boom is from the Moab. And there'll be little cartoons that you'll see in different news sites about, look, this is how a Moab works. Okay, fine. We'll learn a lot about this bomb. It's just a bomb. It's a big, dumb bomb. Useful, but not a strategy. It's uh, it's a tool. It is not the full toolkit, and it's certainly not the end purpose of what we're trying to accomplish in Afghanistan. So with North Korea, we're sending a, a uh, well, a carrier and uh, some ships as part of an armada along with it. Uh, but that's just to remind the, well, to remind the North Koreans that we mean business and that uh, one carrier group that we have could devastate them. But the North Korean response to that, of course, would be, I mean, the rhetorical response, that they could destroy we could send every carrier group we have to just sit off the coast of North Korea. Uh, they could wreak havoc on uh, South Korea and Seoul within minutes. Uh, and there's really nothing. If, if they went first, there's very little we could do to stop there from being mass casualties in South Korea. So I said before, North Korea holds its own people hostage. It also holds South Korea hostage, which limits a lot of our options and the activities that we could pursue to try and uh, try and deal with them. And ultimately, regime change has to be the policy. And that's what we are trying to accomplish here. Uh, but regime change is far off in the distance right now. Uh, we would just hope for containment and slowing of the nuclear program first, and then we could start thinking about regime change in a meaningful sense. Um, how that would even come about, I have heard nobody who is bullish on regime change in in the near term in North Korea. So we're going to be dealing with this problem for a while. China plays a can play a, a very useful role here, but the Chinese have their own reasons uh, for acting as they do with regard to North Korea. Trump has enlisted their help or has begun to enlist their help in dealing with North Korea, but they don't want to see South Korea become all of Korea, meaning they, they don't want to see a pluralist or a... Um, a, a free market liberal democracy on the Korean on all of the Korean Peninsula that's buddy buddy with the United States. Also, because of the recent political tumult in South Korea, we have a liberal uh, a liberal government coming in into power there that may not be as friendly towards the United States and our goals and intentions uh, as the previous uh, president and, and government had been. So there are some problems there. But China wants to see a slowly uh, less belligerent and less dangerous North Korea form, they don't want to see a a free market democracy in North Korea. So we don't have the same end state in mind. You've got to keep that uh, keep that in, in your sights as we look at all this. And then also look at how useful it is for them from the get-go. You already had Trump say he might give them a better trade deal because of how they deal with North Korea. Okay. Well, that's leverage for them. That's leverage in this whole process. They can say, well, sure, you want us to stop our cyber theft of your most critical commercial uh, uh, commercial intellectual property, as well as military and industrial secrets, everything else that we can get from you. Yeah, sure, America, the Chinese government will slow down on that. But, you know, first we'll deal with North Korea. And if you want us to do that, you're going to have to back off on this other stuff. It's useful. It gives them leverage and they know it. So uh, that's, we're going to have to see how that plays out. But all of this is, 
a work in progress. As I said to you, we've had a couple of decades of failed policies. We've had f- nuclear freezes that weren't even freezes. In fact, one nuclear freeze we had, meaning of the North Korean program, one freeze we had lasted like a few weeks before it was clear that there was no freeze. They, The North Koreans uh, act badly and get stuff in response. They know that they can uh, lash out, get the world's attention, and then the international community will be stuck in this position of how much do we want to punish North Korea as a whole versus the regime, because allowing more people to starve is clearly not effective policy, nor is it moral. Um, And all the while, it's an existential threat to South Korea. It will be a threat to the U.S. homeland. It's just a question of how many years out that will be. And we don't have any good military options for dealing with it in the meantime. I mean, we have to remind them that any true aggression would be met with the annihilation of North Korea. But the trade-off that we don't want to make is the annihilation of North Korea if it means the annihilation of South Korea, too. Um, And we don't want the annihilation of anything other than the regime, the government. We just want them to go away. Uh, This totalitarian nightmare that just continues to roll on. Interesting. I I mentioned, I think, before uh, Hitchens quote on this. He he was one of the few journalists who had visited uh, all the members of the Axis of Evil post 9-11. So he had been to North Korea, uh, Iraq and Iran and uh, he's made a very interesting point, I thought, in, in some of his writing on this and some of his speeches on it as well, that you have to remember also the grinding psychological destruction that occurs from being in a society where there can be no freedom of thought, where there is, in fact, a, a bo- an enforced boredom and repetition and everything is told to you and that's the way it has to be. There can be no deviation from it. The psychological scarring on the population is really hard for anyone outside of North Korea to understand or comprehend. Uh, if you have any thoughts on this, I will. I know you've I've seen a lot of calls coming into the last hour. We'll uh, take a couple of them after this break, but we've got some spots for more. 844-900-2825. What do you think of Trump's military uh, moves, actions, maneuvers, decisions over the last week or so? Big changes in the foreign policy front, my friends. They could be ahead. We'll see. More coming. This is a pretty astonishing headline. Uh, just just came up now from uh, NBC Nightly News, their verified Twitter account. Breaking sources, U.S. prepares for possible preemptive strike if North Korea chooses to test a nuclear weapon. Preemptive strike? Uh, North Korea has been saying a big event is near, as we were discussing before, the day of the sun, the birth of Kim Il Sung, the uh, original North Korean dictator, uh, who, of course, they say was born on on a on like a special mountain, a mystical mountain, and uh, turned he was born in in like a village in uh, China. Side note, but uh, Chris in North Carolina on WPTI, welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. Uh, thank you both. Thanks so much for taking my call, and uh, I just uh, heard your program for the first time today, and I appreciate the, the, you know, the concise, systematic way in which you're bringing out things, and I'll be brief and hopefully straight to the point. Um, it's sad that you know most of uh, our enemies um, in the East and, and um, the Middle East, they probably, and of course Europe back in during the Second World War and the First World War, 
they pretty much probably know our history better than we do, and that is, as they have saw the climb of our economical, our military, and our our commercialization, our prosperity in every way, they have, as Hitler said, the West is too comfortable to get involved. Well, you know, sad to say there's some truth to that, and that's what the last administration literally, I believe, was uh, helping to prepare the people of this nation for, and that is just a, a life of laziness, ease, and just let's just all get ready for a good life of socialistic activity and get along with the rest of the world. Sad to say that's not reality. So what Trump has done and I'm believing is going to do is going to show and prove these nations wrong, like the Adolf Hitlers, like the Mussolinis, and even the Stalins and um, Khrushchev, uh, these individuals that pushed the buttons of our leaders and did not think that we would buck. And is I think it was you, you don't have to go that far back, uh, Chris, and, and we, we don't have to look at, at the, the monsters of the past like Stalin and, and Hitler. Uh, Osama bin Laden thought that America was a paper tiger, that we would that if we were punched in the mouth, we would run. That was that was Osama exactly. bin Laden's initial. Uh, and I, I think when people talk about the messaging that Trump is trying to send with some of these recent actions, it's that that's not that's not the case. Now, he's not trying to start a major war with anybody or uh, do anything that is, uh, is is deeply unwise and unwarranted. But I do think he's reestablishing that America will uh, America will hit back and will not take things in stride. Uh, Chris, thank you for calling in from North Carolina. Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. We got about a minute. What's up, Richard? Well, I wanted to ask. I heard you say uh, two things that have interested me for a long time, and I just wonder if you really have a fax or it's just your opinion, because I've heard a lot of other hosts say, you said two things. You said that this is what uh, the United States is the wealthiest country in the world, and it's also the most powerful. I just wonder, is that just your opinion, or do you really have any facts? Maybe are there facts to back up something like that? Well, yeah, we can, we can measure we can measure GDP, and we could also take a look at the United States military and do an order of battle against any other military anywhere in the world. And I think the facts pretty much speak for themselves there. So, yeah, the the answer to your question is yeah. Actually, we are we are the the richest and the most powerful. And if that weren't true, by the way, I think other countries would would at least try to call us on it. And uh, no, they they know they they're all quite aware. In fact, one of the problems we have is that in some areas of the third world where I've spent time. People think that America, well, they can do anything. And the answer to that is no, we can't. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So CIA Director Mike Pompeo uh, spoke today. I wasn't really sure. I didn't know what he was going to speak on. And as you have heard from well, for me saying it, as well as some of our interests in the show, I, I was a CIA analyst for a number of years, so I spent some time at Langley, uh, and I still have some very good friends uh, who are, uh, you know, in the intelligence world. Um, but Pompeo was speaking about WikiLeaks today. That was really the main, uh, the main target of his ire. Uh, he started off by speaking about, well, I can give you a little bit of of his remarks here. He said, let me start today by telling you a story. He was a bright, well-educated young man. He was described as industrious, intelligent, and likable, if inclined toward impulsiveness and impatience. At some point, he became disillusioned with intelligence work and angry at his government. 
He left government and decided to devote himself to what he regarded as public advocacy, exposing the intelligence officers and operations he had sworn to keep secret. He appealed to agency employees to send him tips, leads, suggestions. He wrote in a widely circulated bulletin, we are particularly anxious to receive anonymously, if you desire, copies of U.S. diplomatic lists and U.S. embassy staff. That man was Philip Agee, one of the founding members of the magazine Counterspy, which in its first issue in 1973 called for the exposure of CIA undercover operatives overseas. In its September 1974 issue, Counterspy publicly identified uh, a member of the CIA or the CIA station chief in Athens, uh, chief of station in Athens. Later, uh, that man was assassinated, returning home from a Christmas party. Um, this is all up on uh, CIA, CIA.gov, where they have the official statements from Pompeo. So Pompeo is saying that there was a, a turncoat back in the day who said he was doing this for, um, he said he was doing this for reasons of uh, transparency and because he was a a, a patriot and he was trying to, to help the American people. And of course, that was all nonsense. And then Pompeo goes on to say that that's what we should think of when we talk about uh, Snowden and his revelations and WikiLeaks. And he went even further with WikiLeaks and called it a non-state hostile intelligence service. find the celebration of entities like WikiLeaks to be both perplexing and deeply troubling. Because while we do our best to quietly collect information on those who pose very real threats to our country, Individuals such as Julian Assange and Edward Snowden seek to use that information to make a name for themselves. As long as they make a splash, they care nothing about the lives they put at risk or the damage they cause to national security. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. WikiLeaks walks like a hostile intelligence service and talks like a hostile intelligence service. He's saying that uh, WikiLeaks needs to be, well, he is calling it out, and he's saying that WikiLeaks, as well as uh, Snowden and, and anybody who has worked with them, is deeply damaging to uh, U.S. interests and uh, should be thought of as working for the enemy. I've had some very interesting conversations with friends of mine, including people in the, people in the media as well as outside of media, uh, some libertarians that I know are very favorably disposed towards Snowden, and I've asked them for many times, I said, well, what about, what about Snowden's disclosures about any alleged or possible overseas activity that the U.S. intelligence community might be engaged in? Uh, wh- why do you think that's relevant, or why would that be—how wh- does that fall under the— the broad rubric of transparency and the answers I always get are, oh, but, you know, that's, but he really started an important discussion about surveillance. Well, uh, I don't, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, he started an important discussion, but when we look at uh, what the outcome of those disclosures were, you can believe that Mike Pompeo and, uh, and many others like him are, uh, are lying um, you can believe that the senior most intelligence officers that have spoken about this issue, you know, former directors of CIA, NSA and other places are all part of some conspiracy to lie to all of us about the Snowden disclosures. Or you can accept that Snowden did a lot of uh, a lot of damage with what 
he took it upon himself to do. Um, and I, I don't know anybody who has who has worked for the intelligence community who hasn't at one point or another thought, oh, man, this place, you know, it's dysfunctional. It's so bureaucratic. There are so many, um, so many problems here. And, you know, what am I doing and everything? You know, there's a lot of that that goes on. But I also don't know anybody that ever thought, I've got an idea. I'm going to abscond with lots and lots of classified documents because that'll make America a better place if I run to the Russians and expose this information to public view that uh, could do a tremendous amount of national security damage. It, it's It's been surprising to me to see some of the credibility that some of my fellow conservatives are willing to, not just on the, on the Snowden issue, to say that what he did was somehow altruistic or the motives were pure or whatever, um, but even beyond that, uh, it's surprising to me that people are willing to listen to WikiLeaks without saying or without being clear on the fact that, yeah, maybe they just because the information may be or may not be uh, true, it doesn't mean that it should be disclosed. Um, think about how you'd feel if, you know, a friend of yours or somebody that you knew had their you know private medical records disclosed. Well, just because it's true doesn't mean that that should be out there for everybody. Right. That, that's that's not a justification in and of itself. Um, I, I think it's interesting that Pompeo came out to say this today, and um, my understanding uh, from folks in the in the IC is that Pompeo is uh, well-regarded and so far doing a very good job, but he just felt the need to speak out about this uh, WikiLeaks stuff, and I can understand why. It, it's, it's strange to me how much people are willing to excuse from Assange, and it's it's even more bizarre in some ways how Snowden is is considered a, a hero, not just by radical leftist, progressive, you know, not uh, crazy folks who think that somehow undermining the United States is always in the interests of humanity, which is the opposite, I think, of reality, uh, but by some Republicans I know, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's good. What Snowden did was good. No, I think what Snowden did was pretty terrible. So Pompeo came out and spoke about that today. Um, I want to talk about the EPA as well as getting into the uh, politics of the day here in a couple of minutes. Uh, phone lines are open, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Uh, be back in just a few. And before I come back in just a few, let me also tell you about Simply Safe, my friends. Uh, there are countless stories that you can look at across the country and they're heartbreaking where someone uh, a minor electrical fire burns down their home something that was just uh, that with just a little bit of preparation um, of having the right system in place could have been the difference and instead of just having to call fire department or to call emergency authorities um, it was too late uh, and the phone call wasn't made in time Simply Safe Home Security. Make sure that if there's a fire that starts, you can get notified, even if you are states away. It can be the difference between your home burning down and your home just having a visit from your local fire department or, or authorities to take care of things. Simply Safe makes a huge difference in all of these things. And they have round the clock professional security monitoring. It's just $14.99 a month. I've got a Simply Safe system at home. You set up the base, you go online, you create an account for yourself, and then you can download an app and control it all from your phone. Simply Safe uh, is 
the best that you can get in the business for these purposes. I'm telling you, it's run off your Wi-Fi. It's so simple and user-friendly. So get 24-7 connection to dispatch and lightning-fast response times in emergencies with Simply Safe Home Security. Order today, and you'll get my special 10% discount. Go now to simplysafe.com slash buck. That's simplysafe.com slash buck for 10% off your home security system. Simplysafe.com slash buck. And team, we'll be right back. I have to tell you, I've never seen anything quite like this in uh, news reporting, at least not that I can remember. Uh, I mentioned to you that NBC News headline. Let me just give you what they are reporting. And this is this is just as of the last as of the last hour while we've been on air from NBC News. U.S. may launch strike if North Korea reaches for nuclear trigger. The U.S. is prepared to launch a preemptive strike with conventional weapons against North Korea, Should officials become convinced that North Korea is about to follow through with a nuclear weapons test, multiple senior U.S. officials told NBC News. North Korea has warned that a big event is near, and U.S. officials say signs point to a nuclear test that could come as early as this weekend. The intelligence officials told NBC News that the U.S. has positioned two destroyers capable of shooting Tomahawk cruise missiles in the region, one just 300 miles from the North Korean nuclear test site. American heavy bombers are also positioned in Guam to attack North Korea should it be necessary. And earlier this week, the Pentagon announced that the USS Carl Vincent aircraft carrier strike group was being diverted to the area. The strike could include missiles and bombs, cyber and special operations on the ground. This is uh, this is tense. I think we could all say that this is tense. Um, all right. Dennis in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friend. Good to have you. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, in reference to your prior conversation about Snowden and other leakers, uh, I agree to a point with you. Uh, our national secrets should not be discussed or, or our people should not be put in danger. But my question to you, and please understand, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but without people like Snowden, how would we have known about unsecured servers, Bernie Sanders having his, uh, his presidential uh, ambition sabotaged by Debbie Wesserman Schultz, and Benghazi, the lie. Well, wait. What is uh, I'm conf- you're, I'm missing the connection between Snowden and the Bernie Sanders servers. Well, I'm saying that these people were exposed. In general, uh, stuff that's been going on, we would have never known about because obviously the Democrats and or the people in in power would have not told us about the unsecured servers. We would have not known about Sanders having his uh, his presidential hopes sabotaged. And Benghazi, that it was uh, it was just a, a bunch of people. Well, getting- uh, do you not believe that the that the Russians hacked uh, Bernie Sanders's or, or sorry, the Russians hacked not Bernie Sanders, uh, but the DNC and uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now. You know, what I'm talking about uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. The guy who was uh, key Hillary aide chairman of her campaign, that guy. Anyway, yeah, I know you're talking about. I yeah. can't I'm just blanking, but go ahead. You don't believe the Russians did that? I mean, that that wasn't that the Russians. What am I missing? Well, let me let me just put it to you this way. Okay, say it was the Russians. Say it was say okay. Podesta, Podesta. There we go. I kept wanting to say Pompeo, and I'm like, he's a CIA. Podesta. There we go. Sorry. Yeah, I forgot about his name since he just put up. But let's just let's be uh, real here. North Korea, China, Iraq, uh, all these countries, Russia. All these countries buy their stuff, and I saw it. I watched it on my computer screen when the FBI was questioned, and the high-ranking officials said that Congress uh, or the Senate and the House couldn't 
be given this information. It was so top secret that it went a level above them in the FBI. So all of this was going out all over the world. Nothing's happening to these politicians that are, that are violating uh, protocol or what they've been taught. But the small man or the small woman, if we, I was in the service, if I did a fraction of that, I was a, I was a sergeant on a, uh, when they had the Minuteman uh, missiles, and I'm going way back now in the 70s. We had codes. We had to destroy the codes after we, we checked somebody in. This is, this is obscene. It's our, it's, uh, I believe in our government to a point. But what's going on behind the lines that we're not being uh, told? And if it wasn't for these leaks, we wouldn't have known about the real story about Benghazi, even though we had our hunches. We wouldn't have known about Bernie Sanders. Uh, well, hold, hold, on, hold, on, hold on a second. Hold on a second, Dennis. I'm not opposed to all leaks and all disclosures of information. I'm opposed to what WikiLeaks has done with U.S. Uh, information, whether we're talking about Chelsea Manning or other leaks uh, of, of classified out there um, that's that's not helpful to what I mean the, the the Chelsea Manning situation is a perfect example there was nothing there was no mal there's no U.S. malfeasance that was exposed it was just let's just put all this classified diplomatic and military traffic out there well, well what is the, that that just hurts the U.S. national interest there was, there was no benefit from any of that no, I, I, I'm agreeing 100% with you. What I'm, what I'm stating is, okay, I know that that's wrong, and he or she or whatever he decides he is now, stuff like that, I believe that's wrong. But how do we find out what our own government's doing if there's, little, there's no leakers out there? I, I mean, in one well, there are a lot of, but there are a lot of leakers. <laughs> the question is, the question is what, are, what are you leaking, right? I mean, if you're leaking... Uh, if you're leaking information that makes it harder for us to uh, collect information on terrorist organizations, on enemy powers, that's that's just hurting us. That's not helpful to that's not helpful to any American. And if but if you're leaking information about an, an illegal program that's going on inside the United States, yeah, I mean, I, I'd want to hear about that. Uh, and look, there there have been cases, and the, there have there was that NSA whistleblower. Who came for? Who initially gave information to the press? Then they, the government went after him. They ended up dropping all the charges, and that was pretty terrifying. I mean, look, I I understand the government pretends stuff is classified that really isn't. The government plays games here. Uh, there's a lot of politicized prosecution that goes on, especially in the realm of national security. The fact that Hillary Clinton was not prosecuted for what she did is an absolute scandal, especially when you see other people for much less having their careers and lives ruined, going off to prison, felony convictions uh, in some cases for uh, for active for Taking pictures that the man on the submarine. Yeah, I'm thinking of I was thinking of the guy on the submarine. I, you know, come on. Uh, I'm I'm aware of all that. I'm not, look, I I wasn't saying, I'm not making a case that just because the government Uh says so, that's the way it needs to be. But what Snowden did is reckless. And what WikiLeaks does is, is an adjunct to Russian and other enemy efforts to undermine, uh, our, our faith in government entirely in this country, but also to harm sources and methods and and undermine the U.S. intelligence and, and uh, military apparatus, in this, which is really dangerous. It's not good. It's not helpful. Well, I agree. But what what can we do? How can how can the, the average person, the taxpayer, the man, the woman worker, the, you know, how do we know what our government's doing? Uh, because everything's hush-hush behind closed doors. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, spies and that kind of different things, which we need, and you know, but every country's doing it. But how do we find out what our government or our people are doing wrong? Well, uh, Dennis, I, pre- I, I will answer your question, but I've got to move on because we've got a bunch of calls up. But thank you. Um, to, to Dennis's question, uh, 
Well, we of course we have Congress doing oversight, and I, whether that makes you feel warm and fuzzy when you go to bed at night or not, I, I leave that up to you. I know that Congress is not exactly lighting my world on fire these days either. I'm aware, uh, but you do have Congress in place with that description, and and they have access. They have committees, and they have access to classified information. They can see what's going on. Um. So there's that. There also are selected leaks to the press that I think sometimes are justifiable, depending on what we're talking about. But if there's illegal activity or legal government collection going on against uh, against the American people, then, yeah, then I would want to know about that. But anything the government's doing in terms of intelligence work outside of U.S. borders, that's that's under their mandate. And God bless, you know, that they, they should be doing that stuff. I mean, unless it's like deeply immoral, we're talking about some program we're running around, you know, assassinating people for no reason. That that obviously would be a problem, too. But I'm saying in terms of information collection, whatever the intelligence community is doing outside of the U.S., uh, that's that's its mandate. That's its mission. And Congress has oversight. Um, Barry in Mississippi. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friend. Shield how are you doing? Good, sir. Shield Tide. <laughs> hey, I got to ask you, because you might know. Uh, do you have any doubt at all that it was Assad that dropped the gas? Because, you know, a lot of us are kind of worried about the Muslim Brotherhood and the fact that Assad might be the fifth secular dictator that uh, protected Christians to go down. Well, <laughs> if it's if it's a if it's a false flag, it's a really uh, risky one on a number of levels. And, and first, let's start with the one that I think goes to your argument and, there, and therefore to the question, the, the one of efficacy. Why would this usage of there have been many usages of chemical weapons, many deployments of chemical weapons against civilians in Syria stretching back for years. So unless all of them and they're all attributable, by the way, with the exception maybe of some chlorine bombs that ISIS may have used. I know they've done that in Iraq. I'd have to look and see if they've done it in Syria, uh, but all attributable uh, attributable to the Assad regime. So unless they're all fakes and none of them have been exposed as fakes, meaning that not that the attack was fake, but that the responsibility was faked and that it was a false flag put on the Assad regime. Uh, why would, you know, why would they do it this time? Right. So it, you, there was an attack. No, I'm, I'm saying that, that you right. would have, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Are you convinced there was even an attack? Maybe it was just trumped up with videos and, and you know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced there was an attack because the, the people that. Uh, that monitor this and have access to information from our own government who are patriots and and I think have our best interests at heart as much as they can, uh, they uh, they are very clear that there was this attack that happened. I mean, there, there's no there's no ifs, ands, or buts in their mind. I, I know that we can always go down the pathway of like, well, Buck, you weren't there. And yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm not. But but if we're going to if we're going to hold me to that standard, I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. Right. No, I mean, there's no. I, I can't I can't talk about anything then that I haven't seen. I'm going to be walking around here talking about the best coffee shops and places to buy books in New York City. I mean, there's there's only so much you can see with your own eyes. Um, so, okay. you, you know, I, I, I don't believe these conspiracy theories that are out there. I don't believe it was a false flag. Um, and and I, I also when you look at the reasoning, forget about just taking the word of our government. Look at the reasoning and the motivations. And it just doesn't stack up. But we got to go to a break. I'll be right back. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back.
We've got our friend Charles Cook online. He's editor for National Review Online. He's the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. Charles, good to have you. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about this uh, journalist over at, what is it, Politico, uh, Josh Dawsey, who recently uh, thought that Jeff Sessions, he, he tweeted out, and look, Twitter, everybody everybody makes mistakes, and, and I'm not somebody who likes to do the, oh, you know, call for firing all the time and everything else, but, but there's more to this than just a mistake, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So this guy from Politico goes on Twitter and thinks that... Jeff Sessions, in a public speech, referred to immigrants as filth. Uh, he came out later and said, OK, I, I, I messed up on that one. But I think that this is indicative of a widespread mentality among a lot of journalists, and especially when it comes to covering anybody with the Trump administration, that otherwise rational people whose job it is to be skeptical and be accurate all of a sudden are incapable of those things. Yes, I'm not one to crucify people who make mistakes either. But there is a pattern here, uh, and it's a pattern that is born of misunderstanding and of ignorance. Uh, And some of that ignorance is willful. Uh, The fact is that since Donald Trump was elected, and and you know as well as I know, uh, that National Review uh, and I were critics of Trump's. But since Donald Trump uh, was elected, Uh, the press seems to have put down uh, its fact-checking red pens, and it seems to have abandoned its skepticism. And the reason for that is is that it has preconceived notions, not only of what conservatives believe, uh, but uh, of what Donald Trump and those around him are like. Uh, And therefore, uh, anything which comes across the transom uh, is deemed to be obviously and self-evidently true. Uh, And so uh, we have a journalist, and I use that word advisedly, uh, who sees the word filth in a a Sessions sentence and assumes that he must have been referring to immigrants. Uh, This is a pattern, as I say, uh, that has established itself now. Uh, And uh, it is embarrassing. Uh, And it's contributing to a culture in which people don't listen to the press Uh, and don't believe what they read in the newspapers. And that's not a good trend overall. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that I think there are a lot of journalists who are are doing what I'm about to assert, but I think it factors into it a little bit, and and that's the following, Charles. I I think that there are some who uh, feel like instead of the tie goes to the runner, in this case being the administration, the tie always goes against the runner. If it's close, it goes against the administration, or if there's any question... It goes against the administration, even at the expense of perhaps being wrong on something, because the initial impact, and I mean that in terms of retweets, readership, uh, yeah. also forming uh, or, or the the opinion forming aspects of information being out there uh, are, are useful. Me- meaning that so you run with a story, even if you're not sure if it's true or it seems it should seem a little dodgy to a, to a seasoned journalist, but you run with it because it hurts the administration, makes them look bad, plays to your base, makes them happy. And then if you have to do a retraction, well, it's no big deal because you've already gotten the benefit of running it. Well, I think that's exactly right. The only, uh, thing I would quibble with you on is that there's a tie involved. It's not that the tie uh, 
goes against the Trump. Yeah, I don't like my analogy there either. I'd agree with you. I was just looking for something. Well, but go ahead. No, I, I don't think it's a bad analogy. I just think that it, it's not so much that these questions are 50-50 and the Trump administration is losing. It's that, that there is a tiny piece of evidence or information or rumor or hearsay, and the piece is written. And it later comes out uh, that there was nothing to it at all. And I think your explanation of, of the difference between the initial story and the correction uh, is exactly right. And this has become something of um, a, a party trick now for conservatives who follow the media to point out that the lie gets 10,000 retweets and the correction gets 100 retweets is that. Right. And, and I also think that from a, from a business model perspective, as, uh, as the media right. is increasingly uh, splintered into these different echo chambers, and that's been happening for a long time, and it's, it's a whole other conversation that we could have, but there, there are clearly media outlets with considerable reach that know that they are uh, they're they're for a certain constituency. I mean, you know, the Washington Post, I'm sure, is aware, and that's a, that's a big one that at least does try to get it right most of the time. If we were talking about the nation, I don't even think there's the pretense of of trying to be in any way impartial, right? But the Washington Post at least tries to get its facts right. It's supposed to, but knows that I would guess seventy percent of its readership is probably anti-Trump, maybe more, right. but certainly a a, a a large majority of it. And so by running an anti-Trump story, as you pointed out, even based on a pretty flimsy assertion by a source that they won't name, they get the benefit of the clicks and the, you know, the, the people turning to their story. It, it goes into the perception molding uh, of the Trump administration is what you think it is. And by the time people realize it's not the case, who cares, right? I mean, the, 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 you, know, you run one on the front page and then the retractions a week later on page C-17. I think there's something more sinister than that, even. Uh, everything you've just said is correct. Uh, there is an illiberalism at play here, and I use that uh, word in the classical sense, in my sense of the word. Um, there is uh, a rejection of the Enlightenment at play here. Uh, the, the fact is that it doesn't matter whether somebody is liked or disliked, is a good or bad person. The truth is the truth. Reason is reason. Uh, and... Yet when it is pointed out uh, that the critics uh, of Trump uh, and his administration uh, are being unfair, one hears, well, look, they're not good people anyway. Well, that's subjective. It's also besides the point. We saw this perfectly illustrative in what happened to Sean Spicer uh, the other day. Uh, Sean Spicer uh, is not particularly good at his job. He is at times ineloquent. Uh, for somebody in communications, there's a lot uh, there uh, to be desired. Uh, but Sean Spicer is, and nobody believes this, uh, not a Holocaust denier. Uh, and uh, yet the press was very, very quick to label him as a Holocaust denier or as somebody who didn't know that the Holocaust had happened uh, because he used a poor analogy between uh, Bashar Assad uh, and Adolf Hitler. Uh, and uh, I saw over and over again people saying, well, OK, maybe that's hyperbole, but it's Sean Spicer and he works for Trump. So why do you care anyway? Well, I care anyway because I care about truth uh, and I care about fairness and I care about justice. And I think if as a society we go down this road where The Washington Post and The New York Times and other mainstream outlets 
are happy to malign people and to lie about them and never to give them the benefit of the doubt purely because in general uh, they think uh, that they are not worth it, uh, then we're going to reverse hundreds of years' worth uh, of progress in reason and justice. Jennifer Palm, uh, Palmieri, who is the communications director for Hillary Clinton, uh, she was willing to say uh, yesterday that, you know what, the media does slant left, but then had this priceless bit of analysis to add into it as well. Six- I think most journalists are probably leaning more to the left than the right. Think about the kind of person that's drawn to do this as a career. Um, you know, they believe in government, they think politics matters, they like it, they find it interesting. Uh, I definitely found a different standard in covering Democrats than covering Republicans. Um, And uh, not necessarily, it's just a different metric that they apply to us, to Democrats, and I think they come after us uh, harder on both uh, being able to solve a problem um, or, and then also on the, on, on, on process and intrigue. She thinks that they're tougher. What do you think about that, Charles? <laughs> I love the idea that the press is obsessed with process. If, if that were true, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah, I mean, I one of the more fun things out. is pointing out how they, they abandon their, their own so-called process at the first, well, I don't even think it's really a process because they don't do it as a matter of process. They just talk about it. Well, I think it's very clear that the first part of her answer is correct, and and it's not as close as she suggests. Overwhelmingly, journalists lean left. This isn't disputed. There's no study that shows anything other uh, than that. Uh, I think if there is a tendency of late to go after Democrats for failing to deliver, uh, it's because they failed to deliver, and they promised so much. I mean, in a sense, her, her statement there is a little silly. Of course the press goes after Democrats for failing to deliver, Uh, in a way that they don't go after Republicans for failing to deliver, because Democrats promise that government will fix things. And Republicans, by and large, think the government is a problem. Uh, Republicans tend to cut government. They tend to pare it back. Democrats tend to promise the world. So what is the press supposed to do in that scenario? But to point out that the Democrats have not ushered in the promised land that they said they would. And I have to say, uh, for, for, for me, I'm, I'm always a little surprised, and I've had, well, a number of times, in, in private correspondence, I won't name the person, but a, a very prominent uh, journalist uh, on, on TV whom I, who I sort of know in, in private life and, and some, at some level, uh, will reach out to me in, a, in an off-the-cuff way and just be like, I mean, do you really believe this, this stuff you say about how there's a media narrative and the mainstream media... And, I, and he's, a, he's a smart guy. And I always want to respond, yeah, dude, of course I do. You're talking about an industry where 90% of you think the same, vote the same, act the same. You don't right. think that that creates a consensus opinion? I I, I just can't. It's, it's somebody who's smart but so incapable. And it's not just him. There's a lot of people like that. But they still, at some of the major networks and some of the major newspapers, cling to this notion that there really is no such thing as a mainstream media, that there's no overriding opinion that is Democrat and left that is what the media pushes. Well, How is that possible? Uh, well, I, I, I think it's extraordinary, but I, I also think that in asking you that question, he has in some way demonstrated why we have the problem here that we do, because his assumption is that you must be playing a game or playing to the crowd or making it up. Uh, in other words, he has never been talked through 
the arguments that disagree with his own. He has never internalized them. He's never come to respect them. I, I don't find myself as a conservative asking progressives, do you really believe that? Are you just saying it? Is this entertainment to you? I know they believe it. I'm surrounded by them. I'm from England. I live in Connecticut. I work in New York City. I understand what my opponents think. I think they're wrong, but I know what it is that they believe. And I'm sure the person you're talking about is very nice. But the fact that he believes that it's some sort of performance art, the fact that he is asking you, do you really think that, shows that he has never grappled with alternative opinions. Uh, and yet in the same breath, he is skeptical toward the idea that there is a, a particular narrative within the press. I think that's one of the most instructive anecdotes I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, it, it's happened more than once, and it's it's happened a few times with a particular individual, and I just find it, my, my response, I want to actually respond in all caps, you know, yeah, bro, I do. I actually do think that this is a real thing, and I can't believe you don't, considering where you work and, and who you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. But I, I think that that, and this is what, what made me think of it originally, it brings me to the concept that now, Journalism, more than ever in my lifetime, I can't speak about it beforehand, uh, feels like it has gone to, and, and this ties in a bunch of what we talked about here, Charles, uh, it, it, it is an open propaganda war where the ends do justify the means, and that takes us through why hatred towards Sean Spicer is warranted, even, uh, you know, hatred of him, and, or sorry, hatred of his comments and hyperbole over them are warranted because of personal hatred for him. I think that's right. now true across the board when we're talking about American domestic politics and the way the media is dealing with it. I shouldn't say not everybody, but I mean, this is widespread now. Yes, I think many members of the media now see themselves as being part of the resistance. Right. It, it's in the open in, the way, in a way that it wasn't even really during Bush. In Bush, they were still playing the big J journalism game. They're really not playing that right. anymore. Or they, If they do, it's, it's obvious and disingenuous. Sure. I think it's fine if you're the nation or the new republic to have an agenda. They're opinion journals. National Review is an opinion journal. Of course we're biased. Of course we have an agenda. Of course we have an opinion. Uh, that is why we exist. Uh, but you and I are talking here about the press, not opinion journals, not literary journals, uh, the press. Uh, and uh, it's one thing to see the obvious uh, twisting going on uh, from somebody who is open about their biases. It's another thing uh, to see it from people who would recoil in horror if you suggested they were anything other than impartial. Well, here's a newsflash. You cannot be impartial and tweet the resistance. You cannot see yourself as the last defense uh, against Republicans and expect to be taken seriously uh, by those who are on the fence. And I think if the Trump administration does anything, it should remind uh, viewers uh, and those uh, who are talking to them uh, of that fact. Charles Cook is editor for National Review Online and author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. Our friend Charles, thank you, sir. Great to have you. No, thank you for having me. We'll speak more, uh, team, about everything that's been going on uh, in Afghanistan tomorrow. Uh, whoa. What was that? Did we just, oh, sorry, I heard something I thought I, I did not go over air, though. It's just a little, uh, little sound effect. I was like, wait, what? Uh, anyway, um, we'll talk about Afghanistan tomorrow uh, in, some, in some detail, uh, and I'll have a, uh, we're planning to have an excellent 
guest join on that because we have the mother of the Spicer. Here, we got Spicer describing the mother of all bombs that was dropped today. At around 7 p.m. local time in Afghanistan last night, uh, the United States military used a GBU-43 weapon in Afghanistan. Uh, The GBU-43 is a large, powerful, and accurately delivered weapon. We targeted a system of tunnels and caves that ISIS fighters used uh, to move around freely, making it easier for them to target U.S. military advisors and Afghan forces in the area. The United States takes the fight against ISIS very seriously, and in order to defeat the group, we must deny them operational space, which we did. The United States took all precautions necessary to prevent civilian casualties and collateral damage as a result of the operation. Um, it was, it seems, a successful, uh, successful deployment of this uh, very large bomb, uh, but that's not really all that significant in terms of what's going on on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, We'll give you updates on that tomorrow. This is another place. You know, you'll notice a theme here, whether it's North Korea or Syria or Afghanistan, uh, the deterioration in the security situation in hot spots, in conflict zones and war zones, places where we have uh, very real concerns about U.S. interests, the interests of our allies, and, of course, uh, the, the possibility that we have um, losses uh, that we might be taking from our own armed, uh, our own armed forces as a result of enemy fire. Uh, those places did not get the due attention and strategic uh, oversight from the Obama administration. They just didn't. I mean, Afghanistan is arguably right now in one of the worst positions it's been in, if not the worst, since our invasion in 2001 in terms of Taliban control. You haven't seen a lot of newspapers talking about that. Well, now they will, of course, because Obama's not president anymore. So there'll be a a renewed focus on the problems that we have in Afghanistan. But uh, we'll we'll do a deeper dive on that tomorrow. Uh, So uh, we'll... Get to it, I promise. Um, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK on those phone lines. Be back in a few. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact, unless you're under hostile surveillance, 888-900-2825. All right, everybody, we're back, and we are joined by Rich Lowry. He is the editor of National Review, a syndicated columnist and a commentator for Fox News. Rich, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with the Kansas special election. Is is this much ado about nothing? I mean, the Republican won. It was kind of close, but people are making it sound like this is a huge harbinger of things to come. What say you? Well, I wouldn't say it's Armageddon. It would have been Armageddon if the Republican Ron Estes had lost, but he only won by about seven or eight points in a district that I think Trump won by about 27 or something like that. So uh, it's clear, you know, the political headwinds are running against Republicans, especially in Kansas, where the governor, Sam Brownback, is epically unpopular. So that makes it a little unclear how much we want to extrapolate from Kansas to uh, other 
elections, but we'll know more after this Georgia special election that's coming up. An, another red seat, not quite as red as Kansas, and if Republicans lost that one, it would definitely be a, a fire bell in the night. Um, why is Brownback doing so badly in Kansas, by the way? You know, he had a, a tax cut that just people hate and hasn't worked out as advertised and has, my understanding, has meant kind of a, a budget shortfall every single year that's been painful. Um, so he is, I think he's, I've seen polls with him in the teens, I believe. And the, the next one, the next special election we're seeing in Georgia, is that the, there's a young Democrat uh, contender who's raised a bunch of money, right? Yeah, he's raised about, I think, 8.5 million. Whoa. And Democrats, just the fundraising is just off the charts. I mean, the best job in the universe at the moment is to be a Democratic fundraiser because it's just people are throwing money at them. It's a Republican district, the Tom Price district. There's, there's a so-called jungle primary, so I don't know, there, there's something like a, a dozen Republicans and one Democrat, and the thought is he needs to get to 50 in that jungle primary. If he does, he wins, and that would be a stunner. If he doesn't get to 50, well, then he's in a runoff with a Republican and, and probably loses. But there is that possibility that uh, this this is like the Democrats are just throwing long bombs into the end zone and seeing what happens, but it doesn't really matter. If, if they get a catch, great. If they don't, no big deal because they're going after Republicans on their home turf. Exactly, and, and they're looking for the Scott Brown-type election. They won't have something that was as consequential as Scott Brown. He potentially, he almost brought Obamacare to a halt. So nothing, no one election is going to do that, special election is going to do that to the Trump agenda, although it may be ground to a halt anyway in Congress, but that's another story. But they're just looking for a sign that a wave could be coming because they need a pretty big one to uh, to hope to take back the House. Now, what do you make of the Kushner and Bannon conflict? Earlier in the week, CNN, and I, I was asked about this on CNN the week before that, and I was like, I, I don't find this to be as, as fascinating as some others do, um, or, or rather as, as important. It's interesting, but I don't find it to be as consequential. But some people tell me it's huge for the direction of this White House. So I, so I, I want to pose uh, that to you. What, what do you think of the, the Kushner versus Bannon throwdown, such as it's being reported? I think it is pretty consequential and more consequential than th this kind of intrigue that you see in any White House, and political junkies always become obsessed with these internal battles. But I think it matters more this time because Trump himself is so unformed, is so susceptible to advice, and the, the last thing he's heard from anyone. So if Jared and Ivanka and Gary Cohn really become uh, totally ascendant, it will affect policy. We may already be seeing that this week with uh, Trump you know, backing off on um, labeling China a currency manipulator, backing off on his opposition to the XM Bank, and generally sounding uh, more, quote-unquote, uh, moderate. That seems to be Jared and Gary Cohn's um, influence even now. And if Bannon is exiled entirely, their influence would only grow. You think that might happen? Uh, I've started to see some. I didn't think that was in the cards really until about the last 24 to 48 hours. I saw a few things, things the president has said and some indicators. I'm like, oh, maybe Bannon's going to go back to running a website after all. Yeah, uh, people who are more plugged in than I am wouldn't be shocked if it happens this weekend. Doesn't mean it's going to happen this weekend. Maybe he keeps his head down and he stays. But he's definitely diminished. And just the things Trump has said about him over the last couple of days are just they're, they're consistent with the firing. When, when Trump shows up, tells the New York Post, 
I, I haven't heard of this guy, basically. You know, he worked for me very briefly <laughs> in the campaign and said uh, in a Wall Street Journal interview, he's a guy who works for me. You know, can you imagine George W. Bush ever talking about Karl Rove in that way? You know, Bush uh, called Karl Rove the architect. And uh, um, Bannon is just a guy that happened, happened to have an office in the White House, if you believe President Trump. And what do you think about that? If Bannon goes, what do you make of the direction of this White House? You think it's better? I'm assuming, uh, well, I don't want to put any words in your mouth or, or any thoughts out there and, and uh, pretend that they're yours, Rich, but uh, w- you can tell us what are your thoughts on Bannon and what does a Bannonless White House mean? I'd be worried if he goes. Now, I'm not a huge Bannon fan. I don't like the protectionism. I don't like the kind of needless and endless confrontation. Yes, there are times to have fights and throwdowns, but if you're doing it all the time, you're just sowing chaos and hurting yourself, and I think we've seen too much of that out of the gate here from the Trump White House. But, you know, he's a populist slash conservative, and I think he helps keep Trump grounded somewhere in that conservative populist spectrum where there, there are differences definitely, but there's about a 70 or 80 percent agreement. And what I would worry is not that uh, Jared and, and Cohn, you know, pull Trump back on trade, which I'd kind of welcome, but that uh, it goes further than that. And they begin to get embarrassed, you know, by his uh, immigration restrictionism. They don't want to have a fight over uh, Planned Parenthood and any funding bill. And kind of the, the, the things that would be embarrassing at a dinner party with Anna Winter, where Jared and Ivanka, you know, are typically very comfortable, that those things will begin to get softened or pulled back. And th- that that's my worry. And I, I think, again, talking to people who are more plugged in with this White House than I am, it's it does seem to be a legitimate worry. And I see you have a piece here, National Review, where you are the the editor. Uh, concern the, uh, Concerns the president is up for grabs. What do you mean? Well, he's he's unformed. You know, look at trade. That's the one thing that he's been most consistent on for 30 years. And we don't even know that this is going to be a protectionist administration. And it seems like it probably isn't going to be. Again, on that specific policy, I welcome that shift. But it means really he could shift on almost anything. And the big enchilada here is what if there's a, a another Supreme Court opening and it's from the left of the court – and you get you know a cultural jihad from the left that makes what they did against Gorsuch you know look like child's pay, play, you know based on the idea that this time Roe v. Wade could really be in jeopardy, and you have Jared and Ivanka and and their allies having a much bigger say on what Trump does than they ever have before in the in the political world. Do they throw down and and say okay we're gonna we're gonna fight this to the death to put a constitutionalist in there who probably will vote against Roe v. Wade? I'm not so sure. So that, that's, that's my worry. It's speculative at, at the moment. We don't know how much Bannon has been diminished. We don't know whether he's going to go. Even if he does, we don't know if the sphere I have will actually be realized. But again, I think it's a legitimate worry. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, syndicated columnist, Fox News commentator. Guys, go check out nationalreview.com for all the latest there. Rich, great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thanks so much, Bud. All right, team, 844-900-2825. What do you all think of the Bannon-Kushner feud? Do any of you think that it would be a bad thing if Bannon was no longer part of the administration? Uh, Very curious to know what your thoughts are on that if it uh, moves you to pick up that phone and, and dial. So please let me know. We'll hit a break. We'll be right back. So I'm very pleased to uh, tell you all, uh, Team Buck, I'm very pleased to get a chance to 
announced that uh, BuckSexton.com is up and running. Uh, it's a, a relaunch of sorts. I, I had had a, I had the URL. I guess that's what you call it, right? I, I had had the website for a while, and didn't really do that much with it because I was an employee of the Blaze. Um, so I, I had a website that I had to, I was working for at the time, but I just, I own my URL and, uh, now, um, we are going to be writing there. We're going to have the show posted there. Uh, I will, we, I'll be writing there. We'll be posting stories from the show. So bucksexton.com is now the digital online home of the freedom hut. We got to get some cool freedom hut uh, stuff up there it's, it's going to be e- evolving as we go forward and I'm, I'm even hoping that we'll have gear up on the website so that will be uh freedom hut t-shirts team buck t-shirts all sorts of fun stuff um, and that will all be added in the in the future but for right now uh, i have a, a short post up on some of my thoughts from today i'll be adding more uh, i'll be writing there and it'll be a place where we can all check in you'll be able to write your comments on what I'm thinking about. We'll be posting stories that we're talking about on the show. And uh, also, if you if you would like, uh, please do give me your your email. Um, <laughs> please, there's no way to ask that without being like, hey, uh, would you like to give me your email? Um, I'll, I'm planning to create, I'm not sure how often we'll do it yet. This is all uh, in progress as the show continues to grow and we uh, build out the team and, and work on some of our our fun projects, uh, but we're hoping to get a newsletter. I don't know if it'll be, it'll probably be weekly, I'm hoping. Um, that's what we would use your email for to send you best moments from the week, news analysis, maybe have some guest columnists who'll be joining in on the fun, all, all sorts of things. You know, I've uh, I've had a, f- a fair amount of people in, in the last few years who've come to me and, and wanted to know, you know, how would I, st- how would I get my start in the, in the media business, news commentary, I, I think that's probably the best description of what I do, news commentary. And I, and then I tell them my backstory. I give them a shortened version because I want to be like the guy that's, whoa, you know, when I was your age, and I give them some long, drawn-out, you know, I was walking to school in two feet of snow, barefoot, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but, yeah, I, I fell into the media business. It didn't really it didn't really strike me as what I would do as a, as a career, um, uh, CIA, and then I was thinking probably Wall Street or corporate America in some capacity because be fun to. I thought it would be fun to make some money, and I got hired to go work for the Blaze right when it was getting started. The Blaze is the website that was founded by uh, Glenn Beck, and Glenn, uh, to his credit and to with uh, with much appreciation from me, hired me. Just figured I'd be good at this media thing. They offered me a job. Uh, I, he was the second person from the company that I met with and, and hired me, but I, I was originally hired and this is, brings you back to bucksexton.com. That's right, everybody, bucksexton.com. You can go check it out. We will be posting, uh, you'll be able to listen live there, um, to the show. So if you're ever wondering, well, what's the way that, uh, and you will be, we'll be posting clips as well. So, uh, or podcasts, uh, so you can download them on uh, one-stop shop. Well, but this stuff is all free, of course, but I'm saying one-stop one stop free shopping at com, and you can also give me your uh, email. Uh, but I, I was initially hired as a, as a website writer, which I thought was a very useful experience as a young person. 
I, was I a young person? I, I, yeah, I'm a young person. I was 28, I think, at the time, maybe 29. Uh, getting your start in media, there's a, websites are a really good place to to get your get your feet wet in this business um, because you immediately get thrown into the world of everything is metrics based. There's some of these people you see on TV that are well known TV journalists. Uh, they've had to navigate, well, it depends. Some of them have just, TV is one of the few places where I've seen people just get kind of waved on through and put up on the perch. And you're like, wait a second, what? That That's just the way this is going to be? And yep, that's the way it's going to be. In a, a media landscape that is uh, mercurial and a better way maybe to put it is just unfair in general. Some of the best advice I ever got in media is from a long time TV news anchor, sort of local news anchor, uh, and and he said, uh, if you think this business is fair, you're always going to be frustrated. Don't ever think don't ever think that it's fair. Just do what you do, do the best you can, and serve your audience. You know, whoever whoever your audience is, you give your you always treat their time as precious. I will say that that is my mandate here every day on the show. Uh, that's why I spend a huge portion of my day preparing for these hours I get with you on radio because I view your first of all I view this as a as a, a special bond and I view myself as in a place of trust that I get to spend time with you but also uh, I know that your time is precious and the fact that you honor me by uh, joining me here on the show means that I even when I am uh, tired or sick or just grumpy or feel like this business is just a just a, a disaster, which the media business in general can feel like that sometimes. Radio, I love, but I mean, once you start throwing TV and writing into it and everything, oh, it's it's a mess. Um, but I, I view your time as precious, and so that motivates me every day when I go to get ready for this show, which takes a vast majority of my day reading in, making sure that uh, I'm straight on all the facts, and then I can. Uh, make the best uses of the time we have together. But I, on the website side, which is how I was initially hired, even though I've mostly done radio and TV in the last few years, you have to immediately get drawn into the metrics. And so you're looking at the numbers and the data. And the, the website game is fascinating. Um, the way that different sites have managed to build little empires for themselves off of really borrowing dare I even say, stealing content from other places, uh, repackaging content, uh, building out their content based on uh, what is optimized for uh, search engines, search engine optimization, SEO. Uh, it's just completely changing the game. I mean, the Washington Post, New York Times, some of the big newspapers that have very substantial digital subscribers, they'll be around for a long time because they have obviously a tremendous institutional Although the, the Times did almost go bankrupt a few years ago, and the Washington Post had to be bailed out by, or bought, not necessarily bailed out by Jeff uh, Bezos. Um, but they'll be around for a while because they're legacy businesses, huge institutional advantage. There is some brand value for just the fact that we know what those papers are, and they have they spend a lot of resources on what it is that they do. But the, the website battles are, I'm talking about the news space. Um, it's really interesting to watch it all play out. 
And I, I, you know, th- there are huge websites that really did build businesses based on, you know, cat videos and listicles, which is a series of uh, an Internet list of something, you know, five, five ways to know that, you know, The Walking Dead is the show for you or whatever, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then they, they build a, a big following on that and they try to game social media platforms. And from there, it just it just continues to be a, a, a big effort at making sure everyone knows the name of whatever it is that whatever entity. I should start naming. So I'm speaking. I know you're like, fuck, you're being very vague about all this. Uh, you, 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 if you look at what uh, some of these brands are, you know, what do they really stand for? What do some of these websites, the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, some of the biggest ones, what is it that they stand for? That's a fascinating question. I've I, I've had that discussion with people who have worked for some of these places, and they don't have very good answers either. It's just chasing traffic numbers. What gets traffic? That's what we go with. Uh, and in the era of the news websites, is it okay to just do anything for traffic? You know, come for the cat videos, stay for the political analysis. Does that work as a business model? Mm, maybe in the short term. I don't know if in the long term. That's quite as effective or as sustainable as some of the people in this business imagine. But, yeah, I was hired as a website writer. It was quite an experience. Very different to go from the secret world of the CIA to the most open, out-there world imaginable of writing for websites where anybody who has you know Internet access can read everything that you're posting and see everything that you're doing. Um, and from there, I moved on to one day, one day we'll all gather around the fireplace together, and I'll tell you some of the early radio stories. Tell you about the first time I filled in for Rush Limbaugh and I had to get a steroid shot to open up my throat because I was so sick and I wasn't going to be able to do the show at all. I've got some fun. I've got some fun media stories that we'll talk about another time. But BuckSexton.com, which is what got me on this little, this mini story time session here. BuckSexton.com is live. Uh, Please do go check it out. We'll be posting stories that we talk about every day here on the show in advance of the show. I'll be writing for the site giving you um, my best insights, written insights on uh, news of the day and everything else we've got going on here in the Freedom Hut. And eventually we're hoping to be selling some T-shirts and other stuff there too. So it's going to be a fun place. And you can connect with fellow members of Team Buck. It's going to be like a for the Freedom Hut is going to be an island. What do we say? An island of liberty where you can hang out with your fellow patriots. BucksAction.com is the site. We're going to talk about microaggressions in a minute, my friends. What are those? Oh, Oh, I'll tell you. Be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. What's up, team? Where are you from? Where were you born? You speak English very well. When I look at you, I don't see color. These are all statements that could get you in trouble. They're all broadly defined as microaggressions. Well, depending on the context, of course. Some of you are like, what is a microaggression? Well, a microaggression is a, an incident, action, or statement, according to Google here, regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. Is a microaggression a real thing? People say that it causes mental anguish and therefore should be banned 
on college campuses as well as many other places. Uh, to address this for us, we've got somebody who's done real academic research into microaggressions. We're joined by Professor Scott Lillianfeld. He's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Emory University in Atlanta. His paper is Microaggressions, Strong Claims, Inadequate Evidence. Professor, thanks for joining. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Good to be here. Okay, so my, you're a uh, clinical psychologist. You also teach at Emory. You're on campus a lot. Microaggressions have become uh, quite a topic of conversation. H- how does it come up in the, co- in the campus context? So, uh, yeah, it's come up uh, occasionally on our campus as well. I, I think uh, there's been obviously um, a lot of racial tension over the, over the last couple of years, and uh, it's understandable that universities and businesses want to address that tension. And I think where it has come up on our campus and some others has been in the context of trying to train faculty and perhaps other students to recognize instances of what appear to be subtle, indirect forms of prejudice against others. And I think what is in most cases a well-meaning attempt to try to tamp down racial tensions. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, it's necessarily going to be a successful one, however. Right, and microaggressions, though, would be not not uh, the incident, uh, incidences where people say something that is obviously meant to be uh, hurtful or derogatory or demeaning. In fact, some of the microaggressions that I see listed include everyday speech and conduct that a lot of us are used to as a form of being polite or trying to ingratiate oneself with somebody. So microaggressions go beyond just don't be discriminatory into you may be discriminating in the eyes of some people, even if you don't intend to. And that's that's right. And that's exactly the concern. It depends who you talk to. There are some lists of microaggressions that also include some of the more blatant things like racial epithets. But the, that would just be that, an aggression, though, wouldn't it? That's right. That's what <laughs> yeah, that would just be aggression. Yeah. That's right. That's uh, a macro. No doubt that, that some people are, are prejudiced and, and bigoted and say say things like that, which we can yeah, no one's no down. one's good. No one's cool with that. We don't like that. Uh, but right. on, on to microaggressions. And I, you're a psychologist. I'm assuming you looked into this from an academic perspective as mm-hmm. to whether it causes, well, you tell me, well, what did you look at for microaggression, strong claims, inadequate evidence? So uh, a couple things, uh, a couple of main uh, sort of bottom line conclusions. First is that th- the problem is that the microaggression concept, although it may have a kernel of truth in it, there's no doubt that that there are subtle forms of prejudice. There's no doubt that people will uh, at times say inadvertent things that offend other people because either they're culturally oblivious or maybe they just step on um, people's toes inadvertently without uh, intending to. We all do that from time to time. The, uh, the, the the problem, though, is that the microaggression concept, as it is currently conceptualized, both academically and on campuses and in businesses, is so broad and so diffuse that it can include almost anything. The core problem is that the concept right now is that, uh, that it's entirely subjective. It's it's in the mind of the uh, in the eyes of the observer. So if someone deems themselves to be offended by what someone else has has said or done, according to many researchers, that is automatically by itself a microaggression. And that's a key concept and a key problem, however, with a microaggression view, because after all, anyone can be in principle offended by almost anything someone says. So the concept itself may have a core of truth in it, but it's become so vague and elastic that it's really lent itself, in my view, to potential abuse. And that means that it's entirely as a matter of definition, then, or at least as a matter of how it is defined in practice, it is entirely subjective. 
So that's, what 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 if problem. nine people in a room think that my saying, oh, where were you born is fine in the context of this person's clearly not American. If one person, even if it's not the person I'm asking, finds that offensive, I could be guilty of a microaggression. Yeah, that's right. I think another, uh, in principle, I think that's correct. I think another key problem is that the, the term itself and the baggage associated with that term is highly problematic. The uh, psychologists refer to things that are aggressive as intentional on the part of the people who are delivering or emitting those actions. But in fact, most microaggressions probably, and even proponents of the concept acknowledge this, are probably inadvertent. A lot of them are probably inadvertent racial or cultural slights. And I, I worry very much that deeming them aggressive is, is not merely a misnomer, it's not merely inaccurate, but it may actually fuel racial tensions because it's not, in my view, a very conducive way to engage someone in a conversation by accusing them of being aggressive. Well, it, it automatically creates an atmosphere of paranoia about speech and conduct that is not intended to be offensive, and that if it's not even based on as we dis uh, discussed a minute ago, if it's not based on societal norms or uh, what, what would be considered, I mean, legally, I guess you could say reasonable man standard or just some form of objectivity, uh, then you could always run afoul of this. And that creates its own anxiety for people. And I, I would agree with you. I think that does create resentment among all parties involved. Well, I think I'm glad you raised that, and I think because I think it, it cuts both ways. I, I worry very much, although here we don't have research on it yet, but I worry very much that it may make everyone feel defensive. It may make um, marginalized groups feel defensive because they're going to be vigilant and on the lookout for potential slights and, and potentially um, discriminatory statements or actions, and it may make people on campuses and universities from majority groups feel defensive and vigilant because they may have to feel that they have to watch what, they, what they're saying. An another point I would raise here is that there are a lot of very strong claims that microaggressions are linked to diminished uh, or adverse mental health on the part of individuals. We don't know that. It's possible, and it could very well be that being repeatedly exposed to subtle prejudice could indeed uh, produce a risk for mental illness. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. But the assumption here is that microaggressions themselves are uh, automatically linked to adverse mental health, health outcomes. We don't yet know whether that's the case. That's very premature to make those kinds so of So there hasn't been much evidence compiled as to whether microaggressions from a clinical psychology standpoint cause actual mental anguish or mental harm. As we say in psychology, there's a difference between correlation and causation, not to get too wonky about it, but we do know that the same people who report experiencing a lot of microaggressions also report a lot of distress, and that is well documented. It's not clear whether there's a direct causal relationship. It could be that certain people tend to be more distress-sensitive overall. It's not to diminish their, uh, their perceptions. Their, well, their is it also possible, though, Doc, that uh, somebody could be oversensitive and therefore upset or offended all the time, or not all the time, but uh, beyond what would be considered normal and reasonable? There are individual differences, differences among all of us in how sensitive people are to, to things in general, and it is true that some some of us are more sensitive to to both perceived slights and, and others, and oftentimes those are the same people who do experience distress. I, I doubt that ex accounts for all of the relationship between supposed microaggressions and distress, all that may account for some of it. And what do you want or what would you like if you were holding a, a campus workshop on this issue and you were trying to give people constru your constructive uh, advice or your, your constructive professional opinion on, on how not to get 
mired in a, an atmosphere of constant uh, microaggression, paranoia, and counter-paranoia? What would you What would you say? It's a great question, and, and I thought about it. I, I think uh, my 30-second my answer is the following, is that I think it's important to emphasize that we all have our biases, uh, myself included. Uh, we all sometimes say and do things that inadvertently offend other people without meaning to do that. And I think that if, if what we call, I don't think the term is, is a good one, but if, if the concept of microaggressions is used as an opening salvo, an opening a starting point in a conversation, they can be helpful. If people were to say, look, you know, what you said offended me. You, you probably didn't mean this. Uh, let's talk about it. I come from this. Um, I have a different cultural standpoint than you have. Um, I'm not necessarily saying you meant this. Let's talk about this and have a conversation. I think it may actually be constructive because it may help people to better realize where each uh, uh, group is coming from and understand that people have different perceptions. The problem with the microaggression concept is it's not the beginning of a conversation. It's the end point of a conversation. So often the, the temptation is to say, you said this, this offended me, stop doing this. You were wrong. And I don't think that's going to be conducive to, to conversation. We need more conversation about cultural understandings and misunderstandings, not less. Yeah, it does seem like it is far too broad a tool to be used by the speech police or those who would like to shut down discussion. But we'll leave it there for now. Professor Scott Lilienfeld, uh, he's a professor of psychology at Emory University. Professor, thank you very much for giving us your time. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure. You know, on the topic of uh, microaggressions, just what a share a couple more thoughts on that with you. I remember reading a, a, a story by a, a socialist, uh, an academic and a socialist that I uh, follow some of the, the work of. Some socialists are very interesting to read, uh, and some of them are actually willing to uh, call out the insanity that progressivism has become. Um, you know, these are Democrat socialists, not like hardline Marxist revolutionary types. But he described an incident where he was present for a meeting, I think it was for a, uh, a graduate at a graduate school where there were some social justice warriors all gathering together to talk about some form of on-campus activism. And there was a, uh, an individual who was Latino. Uh, he, was a, he was a Latino um, and a veteran and was giving some relatively rousing speech about, uh, I don't know, U.S. foreign policy or something, it doesn't really matter, but at some point said, man up, over the course of this, uh, over the course of this discussion, and that was no longer, it was no longer okay. Now he got all these dirty looks from people in the room, and it took a moment for it to sink in that by saying man up, he had undermined all of his social justice social justice credibility, um, even though he was a minority and, 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 a, and a veteran, um, they didn't care. He didn't. And he was speaking about U.S. intervention abroad, if I recall. But the rules are changing all the time. It's really just about tr uh, power. Uh, victimization is oftentimes a means of taking power out of one uh, out of one person's hands and putting it in another. Right. To live in a constant state of victimology is to take for yourself the right to disempower others, if you will, and, and to empower yourself in the process uh, because you are automatically in a state of righteousness because of your victimization. Um, I also want to tell you, I've been trying 
for weeks now, and this goes to a number of issues, but I've been trying for weeks to get someone to come on this show. And I have reached out to friends of mine in the medical community. I've reached, I would like someone to come on to discuss with me medically uh, the ethics of transgender, of what are being called transgender kids, transgender children, uh, in some cases as young as 11, 12, 13. New York Times ran an article just last week, I think it was, about how this needs to be, this needs to happen now, that doctors should be giving, uh, these are, are adolescents, these are, you know, like I said, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, uh, large doses of hormones to prevent the onset of puberty. And so eventually, I suppose after they turn 18, they can officially transition with uh, gender reassignment surgery. Uh, there was, there's even a documentary on uh, Vice on HBO about transgender kids. And I've been hearing and seeing more and more about this phenomenon. And uh, to me, it's, it, it is just, it, it is insane. And I think there are issues now where progressives have, because they've, under eight years of Obama, felt so comfortable politically and culturally to, to push further than ever before on many of these issues, particularly the uh, uh, social issues that the social justice warriors like to take up as their own, that now we've reached territory uh, in this debate where five or six years ago we would have thought, no, no way we'd be here. Kids, they are... This is in the New York Times. This is on HBO. It is being held up as uh, a good idea, as in fact, just, uh, necessary. The right thing to do to give a 12-year-old who's a boy who thinks he's a girl or vice versa, let's assume it's a boy who thinks he's a girl, um, to give that 12-year-old massive dosage, uh, dosages of hormones and hormone therapy at a very young age to prevent the onset of, of puberty, uh, or at least, uh, I guess, male, male puberty, and, and to, to then set oneself up for a future gender reassignment surgery, which is also on its face. I know this for a fact. They, they cannot make a man into a woman or a woman into a man, no matter what surgery they do or anything else. So it's, it's really a process of mutilation uh, of otherwise healthy areas of the body. Um, I am appalled by this whole notion, um, and what I've what I've been trying to do in recent weeks is I, I reach out. We're always told that Democrats are the party of science, and that they believe in logic and reason, and uh, well, specifically scientific logic and reason, right? And that whether it's climate change or any other issue, the science is always on their side, and they use science as a, as a club to to uh, hit people with to end a discussion or end a debate, right? Well, the science is on my side. And the same people will say that and will then turn around and tell you that, well, in this case, on the transgender issue, that a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old should undergo this massive physical transformation. And all, By the way, they have no idea what the, because no one's done this before, what the long-term effects are psychologically, emotionally, physically of putting somebody at such a young age through this process. But the Times is running with, oh, absolutely. In, in fact, now the discussion has already become, if you, don't, if you don't endorse this, if you don't celebrate this, you're a bigot. 
This is brand new. They act like this has been the way it is through all of human history, that there are 12-year-olds that they try to uh, biochemically engineer into non-male or non-female based upon a psychological state. They've just arrived. This is this is new even in the transgender debate, everyone. This is a new frontier in that discussion. And I have been trying for weeks to just get a medical doctor to come on and talk to me about this. Or, or a psychiatrist. Somebody with a background, a scientific background in this area. Nothing. Nothing. They won't do it. Now, if I invited a heart surgeon on this, heart surgeons are busy, you know, maybe they don't want, want to do radio. But if I said, I need a heart surgeon to come on to talk to me about what heart surgery is, I don't think my politics would matter. I just want someone to explain to me how a 12-year-old should undergo hormone therapy for transgender and eventual gender reassignment. And I can't get anybody to come on to defend the premise. Nobody. I and mean, we keep reaching out and asking someone. I, I don't want some left-wing loony, you know, writer for Slate.com or something. I want somebody who knows something. They won't even come on. If this is scientific, if this is about science, why can't I get a scientist to talk to me about this? I'm not a scientist, but I know that that's weird. I know that tells me a lot. So I'm going to keep trying. I just want you to know I've been, I've been searching high and low. Um, it seems like the science is not settled. All right, uh, please do check out facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, that's our Facebook page. And until tomorrow, Shields High.